0: On episode 88 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, the three parts of change intelligence.
1: How can we reframe our focus from doing something to other people, overcoming their resistance, to turning the mirror back on ourselves? The only thing we can control our own mindset and behavior. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from
0: world-class leadership experts. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Randy Lane. Change is the only constant in the modern workplace, but how do you do it well? My guest today, Barbara Troutline, talks about the three components of effective change intelligence. And I'll let her explain those pieces in the podcast. Barbara is the founder and principal of Change Catalysts. She helps people, teams, and organizations build their change intelligence, and she's done it for almost 30 years. Our discussion is wide-ranging. We talk about topics like accelerating change, what workplaces will look like in the future, and more. And now, here's Barbara. Well, welcome to the podcast, Barbara. If you could just kind of start out by maybe introducing yourself and letting us know who you are.
1: I am Barbara Troutline. I am the principal and founder of Change Catalyst, and I've been at this business of helping people, teams, and organizations build their change intelligence for almost 30 years now, starting way back in the mid-80s, working and living in what was then the Rust Belt of the United States, and trying to help automotive plants and steel mills and associated industrial clients, especially, um, change to survive.
0: For people at home, what would be the definition of change for you?
1: A lot of my career has been helping organizations manage large-scale change, so transformational change, Um, mergers and acquisitions, new facility startups, um, turnaround situations, um, IT implementations, new product launches, so a variety. However, change can be at a much smaller scale, too. You know, sometimes clients are uh, you know, having more stress and difficulty changing an office location, right, across town than they might integrating a merger. And, of course, we're all dealing with changes like changing workforce demographics, having four generations in the workplace. Um, we're constantly dealing with executive transition. So changes can be big or small, and they still have a you know, significant impact on on the people and organizations that are dealing with them.
0: So when you're working with your clients, what's the most common kind of change issue they have?
1: Well, I also like to tell a story okay. of my first day on the job as a change leader, if yeah, I might. Of course. <laughs> and, and I always I, I use that expression a lot, change leaders, because I do think that we're all leaders regardless of tenure or title or role. So my first day on the job as a change leader was actually when I was 25 years old, and it was in a steel mill that was in bankruptcy. Mm. So I was part of a consulting team, and um, there I am in the steel mill, and I'm the only female all the guys in there are there's like two or three dozen of them and they're all about they you know, twenty or thirty or forty years older than me and pretty much they worked in that steel mill their entire career. And so I introduce myself and I talk about how we're gonna partner together and transform them to high performance, total quality, self managed teams. And a guy stands up from the back of the room, he's like six foot five, he's two hundred and fifty pounds, and he comes to the middle of the room right in front of me and says, we're steelworkers, and we don't listen to girls.
0: Ooh.
1: So that <laughs> – so obviously it was a different day and time then, different age. Um, and yet, you know, why did he say that to me? Why did he challenge me that way? Well, I think he was afraid, right? I mean, he was afraid. There was a lot of fear in the room. The steel mill was the only game in town. It was the only job most of them knew, and it was already in bankruptcy. So I knew that there was a lot of fear and threat in the targets of the change, Right. Um, However, I also knew from my first day on the job that there was a lot of fear and threat in the leader standing in front of the room. Mm. So when you ask me about some of the biggest factors, failure and success factors that I see in leading change, I think it's really our ability to lead change, to lead change. We have a lot of tools to help us manage change, like project plans and things like that, like the process. But how do we really lead change for ourselves and also the people like the steelworker who are afraid, you know, mm-hmm. or at least confused or at least not on board and don't get it.
0: I have a very similar backstory background before this was in television and I worked at a TV station right as they were making the transition from tape to nonlinear editing on a computer. And I had to teach one of the old school guys how to use the nonlinear system who'd been A tape to tape guy, his whole life. It was a one on one session that the news director said that I had to give to him. (laughs) And I've never seen so much frustration. At one point, he kind of looked over at me and said, You know, I've been doing this since before you were born. You're not going to tell me how to do my job. And I said, Listen, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but the industry has changed. And, you know, come Monday, the machine that you use to edit your tape to tape on is going away. (laughs) You have to use this new technology, and it was very frustrating for him. and I think it was he was afraid because the industry had changed and he hadn't gone with it.
1: Exactly. And that's actually the number one topic in the change management literature is overcoming resistance to change, overcoming resistance. And the problem with that is that what's, what happens so often when we try to lead change, right? whether it's like you or me on the front line right there, mm-hmm. or whether it's the CEO, right? we have the best intentions, right? I wanted to help the steel mill emerge from bankruptcy. You wanted to help this guy keep his job, right? We have the best intentions, but what often happens is that we start feeling like we're getting resistance from the other person, right? We feel like we're getting resistance, and what do we so often do when we get resistance? We start feeling like we're starting to do something to, or against, or even in spite of the other person instead of with and for them, right? Mm And so as I always say, you know, I couldn't change that steel worker. You couldn't change that gentleman, right? Nor should that be our goal, right? To Mm. force change on people. And at the same time, so what can we control though, right? We can't control them. We can't force them. We can only control ourselves. So that's why I talk that the critical competency for all of us, regardless, again, of whether we're on the front lines like like we were at the C-suite, is building our ability to lead change. How can we reframe? our focus from doing something to other people, overcoming their resistance to turning the mirror back on ourselves. The only thing we can control our own mindset and behavior, right? What are our options that we have to deal with that gentleman, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, what can we do differently? And that's what I like to talk
0: about. So when you encounter a leader in the industry that needs to change and they're reluctant, how do you start out with them?
1: What I talk about is that what looks like resistance in other people is often that they don't either get it they don't want it or they can't do it, right? Mm-hmm. They don't get it. They really don't understand the business case for the change. They don't understand why we're moving in that direction. Like to use your example, the gentleman might not have seen all the changes in the industry, right? You know, a lot of people heads down doing their, you know, doing their job, doing it well, or my steel steelworker, shocked that they gave their all for 20, 30, 40 years, and here they are in bankruptcy right? So they just might not get that they actually need to do something differently to survive themselves and also to help the organization survive and thrive. So that's one thing is that they just might not get it, right? The second thing is they might not want it, right? They might get it. They might see things are changing, but they might not want it because maybe they are. um, There are a lot of times we see that people are afraid of some kind of loss, right? So that gentleman might be afraid. He probably has a lot of status, Right. A lot invested in the old way of doing something. A lot of pride. He might feel he's going to lose that. He might lose competency. Right. He really knows he nailed the old way. Um, He might really be afraid that he's not going to be able to learn the new skills. Right. Fear of relationship loss. You know, there's a lot of different things that people might not want it emotionally because of the threat. And finally, what looks like resistance is sometimes people just can't do it. So what you did in your organization was an amazing example of really holding somebody's hand to help them really be able to do something differently. And so often organizations will do something like give people a one-off training program in a group setting, maybe, but not the coaching to really know how to do it. Or throw a quick reference guide at them, right, for how to use a new technology, but they really don't get it. Or there's barriers standing in their way of good people behaving consistently. Maybe the reward system is geared towards them doing what they always did, Mm -hmm. right? Or maybe they don't have the information that they really need to make new decisions and, and behave differently. So what I often say when leaders are encountering resistance is Um, Use the resistance that you're seeing, and that is an enemy, reframe it from your enemy to ally. Look at it as a source of information about what's going on with this person or this group that I can then use to do something differently.
0: If you're the leader of an organization and something is happening like you're going into bankruptcy or your competitors are outpacing you, how do you know how to change and what do you change? Because a lot of times I see companies that change just for the sake of changing, but you need to make sure it's a smart change, right?
1: Absolutely. That's right. So it's funny because when my book came out, I wrote a book called Change Intelligence and it came out a few years ago. A gentleman emailed me and he said, Barbara, I love this idea of change intelligence, CQ. That's great. He said, your next book should be SQ stupidity quotient (laughs) (laughs) because of all the stupid changes that he sees out there. And you're absolutely right. Um, We need a good sound strategy for leading change, right? So that's obviously mission critical. And we also need to have a good plan on how to roll it out, right? Because if we have a good solid strategy, uh, but it's under-resourced, right? Um, Or it's, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's difficult to Uh, to move forward with all the other changes that are going on in the organization or everything else that's going on, people aren't going to, again, do it. And then also we need to engage the people. So one interesting thing is that what I call change intelligence, it's the ability to lead really from your head, heart, and hand. Okay, head, heart, and hand. It's a simple but powerful model. So so if that um, leader at the top needs to embark on a new strategy, right? Let's say that does make sense. So often the leaders at the helm of an organization are head-oriented change leaders, Mm -hmm. right? They get the need to lead from that place of mission and strategy. So that's obviously a strength. However, oftentimes, they can drop out the hands part of change. For example, you look at that TV show, Undercover Boss,
0: right? Mm -hmm.
1: You know, Why do people love that show? Because a CEO masks or masquerades as a frontline employee, right? And sees how hard it is for good people to behave consistently with the change. So often, senior executives, they think that it's going to be easier than it is. They don't see everything that's involved to get from here to there. Their plans, their budget, their timeframes are just not realistic. Mm-hmm. So they need that kind of sense check, right, by their other partners. That they're And they need to solicit that feedback from the organization. And the other thing is that sometimes if people get it, they get the strategy, they get the plan, it's realistic. Sometimes what looks like resistance in their organization and why their organization doesn't move forward is that heart-level resistance. Sometimes resistance is simply a function of people haven't been engaged and involved in the change. We know that participation leads to ownership, it leads to better quality decisions. And sometimes if we just kind of, uh, you know, announce the change without that engagement, and if we announce it in a way that works for that CEO and what they can see at the top of the organization and what's happening in the industry, if we don't communicate it in a way that touches the hearts of people, what their needs and concerns are on the front line in the different departments, then then they're going to resist or it's going to look like resistance. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say that the CEO needs to do is really understand how are they leading from a place of strength. That intelligent vision and strategy, are they giving people what they need to get it, right? And then to want it and connect with it and then to be able to do it.
0: Do you recommend that leaders, I mean, maybe not don a disguise, but go out and really get to know the people that are implementing their company on the front lines?
1: Oh, absolutely. I know that in previous sessions you've talked about walking the talk, walking the line, management by walking around, emotional intelligence. Absolutely. I so often say that relationships get results. Right. Relationships get results. And that, um, you know, in in when we're going through change, we are really making withdrawal, let's say, from our uh, emotional bank accounts with people. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really asking them to step up, do something differently, stretch themselves. And if we have made deposits in those emotional bank accounts by getting to know people as individuals. Right. That's going to really grease the skids for us to be able to move forward. Also, the other thing it's going to do, it's going to build trust. Right. People are going to trust that you're a lot more transparent as a leader. And they're gonna be a lot more comfortable giving you feedback because the higher you go in an organization the harder it is to get any feedback at all let alone real-time and actionable feedback and if you get give it it can feel like political suicide right versus right. savvy so the more that the leaders know the people the people feel comfortable with the leaders they're gonna get the straight scoop about what we're, what's really going on and people are gonna be a lot more courageous about having some of those challenging conversations
0: do you find that when framing the change to people, everyone's a little bit different? Like I know when when I'm explaining something I want my nine-year-old son to do, if I explain all the reasons for it, he's more likely than if I just said, we're doing this now because I said so.
1: Absolutely, that's right, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, That's why participation is so important. People own what they help create. Um, and also I talk about what is a change intelligence strategy for communicating about change? Well, it's got to have head messages, the what and the why of the change. I always say that if, you know, smart people have access to the same data and information, they're going to probably see things in a lot similar way, Mm -hmm. right? So the what and the why of the change, you've got to focus on the hands, the how of the change, show people that there is a plan and a process, and they're going to get the tools that they need to really be able to do it, and then the... Emotional component of the change. Who's going to be impacted? You know, what do I need from you? What do you, what, how can you count on me? Right. And kind of tell the story. So it's got to have those three components, right? It's got to have this the business case for change. It's got to have the plan for the change and it's got to have the what's in it for me. Right. Um, and how is it going to impact me in terms of the change?
0: Is it ever like a conversation and change? Like the top leadership will say, we need to change this because it'll help us meet our revenue goals. They go talk to somebody who's actually implementing in the company and they say, you know, that change won't actually help that much, but I have an idea to help change that will affect, you know, get the result you're looking for.
1: Of course, that's the holy grail of change, right, is when we can get that partnership up and down the organization, right? And that is something that, again, um, what is rare is precious. We have a hugely high failure rate of change. Um, Studies show that something upwards of 70% of major organizational changes, like that example you just gave, right, how can we uh, reorganize to achieve financial targets? How can we implement this new technology to become more efficient, right? those kind of changes sub-optimized. They don't get the results that are targeted, right? And why is that? I think that we have um, disconnects between how we really um, engage for change up and down the organization. So often the people at the top have been thinking about the change longer. They, um, they see the external environment, right? And yet, again, they don't really understand the impacts of the changes throughout the organization. One CEO said to me once, Barbara, it's like we're all monkeys in a tree. We're all monkeys in a tree, and I'm the top monkey, and I look down, and I see the smiling faces of the monkeys below me, mm-hmm. and they look up, and what do they see? And he <laughs> patted his rear end.
0: <laughs> we'll let so, people uh, figure out what that means.
1: <laughs> exactly, right, right. Is your visual image for the day. <laughs>
0: Here's another good example from my own life. So my 62 year old father works in the insurance industry and he's worked there for over 35 years and he's seen a lot of change. And it always seems to go in this cycle where he's doing things a certain way. They decide to change things to make it more efficient. He runs into some roadblocks where he doesn't quite get how the new system's going to work. He gets very frustrated and angry. And then over time, he figures it out, and then he moves on, and that's the new norm. And then he comes up again, they're changing things again, they've acquired a company, and they're going to integrate their systems, and it's not going as well as he thought. So how do you help the maybe the, the older employee who really does want to get and understand the change but just is frustrated when things change so quickly that they can't really adapt and learn it fast enough?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that is one of the biggest topics in the change management literature is change saturation and change fatigue. We're just taking on so much and people are just exhausted. And so I'll say a couple things on that. First, I'll say big picture things, and then I'll come back to this, this you know, your dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so w- one big picture comment is that one of the o- other implications of the fact that folks at the top of organizations tend to lead change from the head, that place of vision and strategy. Obviously, that's a strength, but on the flip side of his strength, any strength overdone is not so much his strength is that they can get enamored by new things, mm-hmm. right? And the shiny penny and the program of the year and what the competitors are doing and not you know, really think about, does this make sense for this organization? Can we absorb more change? Can we do more, right? Can we take this on? That is one way that we really uh, create a disconnect in our organization. And another reason that we need to build those feedback mechanisms, right? From mm-hmm. the front lines and the middle lines up the organization. Because just to your point about, oh, we merged and now we have... Uh, Um, have to learn this new system, for example, what so often happens is that companies merge from a legal and financial sense, but they never fully merge from a culture and a process and a technology Mm -hmm. sense, right? And therefore, they do not get the return on investment. That's one of the critical failure factors. And so just again, you know, hopefully folks like your dad who have a lot of wisdom and experience, right, and really understand how things work on the ground here, right, that's one thing I coach organizations is how do we have those feedback mechanisms, right, to, to show what's working and what's not, right? And can we absorb any more change? So that's one thing I would say, right? Just Again, what you see depends on where you sit and what, you, what your dad sees is very legitimate and real world. And what the executives see is also, it's just very, very different. So how can we facilitate that communication? The second thing I would say is that based on my global database, the least prevalent style of leading change is from the hand. So about 40% of leaders lead from the head, like the executives, right? They lead from the place of vision and strategy. About 42% lead from the heart. So they lead by engaging people and communicating, collaborating, right? And both of those make sense because we know that, you know, strategy is sexy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, you know, it's wonderful to be that visionary leader, right? And we know the bottom line business benefits of an engaged workforce, mm-hmm. right? So head and heart make sense. What do we drop out and often undervalue is the hand. And the hand leadership is the folks who really focus on getting your done, right? Making it real in the field, really implementing the change, doing everything we need to do to make sure that the end users, that the people on the front lines are actually able to and working consistently with the change. We so often tend to drop that out or we think we, or we do change by checklist, right? Oh, we gave them a training program, right? We had this big glossy kickoff, right? You know, we did a turnover and a go live, right? And yet what's the adoption rate? Are people really doing it? right so actually implementing the change effectively and then sustaining it as you said sustaining it before we go on to the next thing that is so common what gets dropped out in organizations
0: i used to also work for an apple retail store and they would have a meeting every month and they would actually like pipe in leadership from corporate to kind of talk about where apple was going and i remember one year they were just opening up stores like every month new store new store new store mm-hmm. I was like, this is crazy. This growth is crazy. And then they said in one meeting, for the next year, we're not going to open up any new stores because we think it's really important for us to make sure these stores we've opened are running efficiently before we try and expand anymore. Do you see companies kind of have that strategy? Like, let's make sure it's tried and true before we move on.
1: That's one of the reasons that Apple is smoking successful (laughs) because not a lot of companies do that, right? Again, and then they get to the point that they've overexpanded, right? And then they need to retrench Mm -hmm. because they just cannot sustain an organization of that size. Yeah, so I love that example. And that's another reason why Apple is so successful because they they recognize the strategy, right? They they rolled it out, but then they also recognize what was working and what was not, right? And the need to take the time to go slow in order to get their results. Because another aspect of leading from that head-oriented place is both getting excited by and enamored by the, the change, right? In this case, the opportunity to expand, But then also not necessarily appreciating all the, you know, what it really takes to um, have those changes take root. So this is another example why partnership up and down the organization, as well as partnership by change leaders who have different styles, is so important. So a lot of times, a frontline person like your dad or a person who tends to lead more from the hand, right, focusing on the implementing and sustaining, Mm -hmm. will be perceived as a Debbie Downer, right? (laughs) Right. by senior leadership right because what they're doing is they're focusing on what's wrong what's not working or what could go wrong what mm-hmm. are the potential roadblocks right they're perceived as kind of a you know a negative person right a change resistant person and they'll get labeled and then they'll get discounted so one opportunity for your dad, for example, or someone from the front line or somebody who really has a much more realistic approach to looking at a new change instead of let's say a glowingly optimistic <laughs> approach <laughs> is to be able to frame, right, their feedback in a way that the senior leaders can really hear it, right? To senior leaders a lot of times is it's really a turn off to them if you lead with no. If you lead with no, this doesn't make sense. We can't expand at this rate. What they'll be thinking is you're a Luddite, right? You know, you have your head in the sand. You don't get that the world is changing. We need to keep up, right? That's what they'll hear if you lead with no. Um, So the opportunity for someone on the front line, somebody who, again, has a more realistic, measured, paced approach to leading change can say something like, that's a great idea. Really interesting, really interesting strategy. And have you thought of X? Right. And have you seen this data? Right. And you understand what's happening in this team, in this part of the organization. Do you want, do you see the cu- feedback we're getting from the customers about this X, Y and Z? Right. If you can, um, again, learn to, as I, you know, as we talk about in emotional intelligence, the, I, the, uh, the holy grail is um, instead of following the golden rule, to doing unto others as you want to be done unto, right? To follow the platinum rule, do unto others as they want to be done unto. Mm. When you're talking to a senior executive, somebody who is very excited about the new strategy, acknowledge, validate, right? The visionary aspect of it and, you know, respectfully and in a business-like sense, not a whiny, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, what appears to be a change resistance Then show the data about and 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 ask questions that show um, that help them benchmark the realism of the plan, right? Mm-hmm. And the, similarly, if a you know, strategic leader is communicating a change to a frontline person who's going to have to actually change their behavior, make sure that you are incorporating the how, mm-hmm. right? And helping them see how to integrate this new change and these new responsibilities with all their other priorities and help them really be able to do it and understand why it's important and how it's going to impact them. So anyway, that's another little bit of coaching that I do to help people up and down the organization, give and receive feedback, right? So they're making the smart decisions and can lead change collaboratively.
0: So also speaking about change, when I think about change leadership done well, I think of like Elon Musk and and Tesla where nobody was really asking for the electric car, but they decided to pioneer that space. I mean, it had been done before, but not in a way that they were doing it. And so they created this, this market for themselves and they've been slowly growing. And now you see traditional car companies trying to get into that space. Do you see companies working more from a proactive change space or from a reactive change space?
1: Yeah, that's also a great question. Back in the day when I started in business, we talked a lot about paradigm shift, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, paradigm shift, how you're really shifting of your mindset. and, And there's some great quotes about, you know, business leaders back in the day, like I think, um, Watson, right, of IBM at one point said something to the effect of, I think there's a market in the world for about five home computers, right? Mm-hmm. Here's a guy, the head of IBM, um, <laughs> and the head of Warner Brothers, movie pictures at one point said, um, you know, no, who wants to hear an actor talk, right? You know, there's <laughs> just all these great examples of, right. you know people that were pioneers at the top of their industry who changed paradigms, right, who who brought totally new innovations to the marketplace that then get tunnel vision, right? Mm. They get stuck in their old paradigm and they don't get the need to, or they don't even see the possibility of how we can do things radically differently, right? And so absolutely, so I absolutely see so much more reactiveness um, and copycatting, right? Mm. Why is benchmarking so popular, right? It's looking at what the other guy's doing, right, and seeing how we can, you know, um, kind of a you know um, hook and hinge that to our organization. Um, so absolutely, a lot and and so so the paradigm paradigm pioneers, as, as we would say, um, uh, the the folks who are really out in front with some of these new innovations, like a Tesla, right? Um, Elon Musk is, um, uh, you know, again, they have a tough road to host sometimes, right? right. Uh, Because there's a lot of data to support doing things the old way. And a lot of times their vision for the future is based a lot on emotion, right? And the data, the business case may not be there, but they just really believe in it. And so it can be challenging to get people on board when there's no track record of success.
0: We'll be right back. And now it's time to meet 360 Solutions strategic partner, Meg Pogue. From Austin, Texas.
1: Most of my career was in the nonprofit world, and after 10-plus years as a CEO of a nonprofit, decided I had had enough of the stress, and I actually have had a close mentor who volunteered for my organization named Bill Forsberg, and he was Ross Perot's right-hand man in all three of Ross's companies, doing leadership development and organizational development. So he coached me. He was what I call my secret advisor. We met monthly for coffee for five years as I grew my organization acquired other organizations. And I realized I wanted to be like Bill. And Bill pointed me to 360 Solutions. And I went out on my own just recently. It's been great.
0: If, like Meg, you're ready to help organizations develop their leaders, Consider partnering with 360 Solutions. Our high-performance leadership framework helps businesses run more efficiently with an engaged workforce. Find out about partnering with 360 Solutions at 360solutions.com/partner. Again, that's 360solutions.com/partner. And now back to the show. So the companies you've worked with, I don't want you to give away specifics maybe, but can you kind of tell me how you've worked with them to get from where they are to where they are now in a positive way, maybe examples?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you can, start at the top, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all studies that we know show that um, successful change is one of the critical success or failure factors of senior leadership commitment. So I start at the top and really focus on how are we leading change, building change, leadership capacity up, down, and across the organization um, because we have so much training, tools for how to develop different leadership competencies, like how to communicate effectively, how to be a strategist, how to um, uh, how to manage conflict, how to coach people. But that's one reason I created Change Intelligence is because I did not know of another you know, assessment tool. I have an assessment development process to help really diagnose and develop this critical competency. So I like to start at the top, build the change intelligence of our senior team individually and collectively, and then cascade that through the organization. And build the ability to lead change, not just in the classroom, right, but in the field. So, looking at the actual initiatives that they have going on right now, to change processes and use them as, as I say, pop-up learning labs, like a pop-up restaurant, right? You know, <laughs> this is a pop-up learning lab of our ability. Let's take this merger that we're doing, right? Let's take this merger and let's let's really nail this. Let's figure out how we are going to not just merge from a legal and financial sense, but we're going to really integrate our culture. We're really going to integrate our strategy. We're really going to integrate our processes right? And make a plan and work the plan. And then it's iterative, right? It's not a one and done. It's okay. You know, we've been at this for a couple months. Let's come back together, see what's working, what's not, right? Have those feedback mechanisms up and down the organization. So we have change champions in the field, right? Who are partnering with people, getting their input into the direction that we need to go and coming back and being able to do things differently. So one healthcare organization, for example, uh, that I work with, they trained you know, almost all the people leaders, are, you know, all, about over 1,300, right, um, in change intelligence. And what results did they achieve? Well, anybody who knows what's going on in healthcare, incredible, massive disruption. Mm-hmm. So they are bringing on new community hospitals left and right, right? So they're able now to do that more effectively. They're able to understand uh, the, the the senior team there. They're able to um, help explain and communicate how the overall system does business in different processes, and then to your point, like your example with your dad, help the acquired system, right, acquired hospital, um, be able to more smoothly do things consistently with the overall system, right? They're able to now, even going down to the, to the level of nursing supervisors, right, they're, they're saying that they're able to use communicating with patients and families from a head, heart, hands perspective, such that they're seeing increases in patient satisfaction results. Because they're able to meet people where they are, understand what looks like resistance or frustration, and adapt their styles as a leader to give people what they need to get it and to want it. So, moving from the pushing the forcing these changes on them, right? Whether it be new processes, new technologies, new customer, you know, patient service protocols, you know, shifting government regulations, shifting relationships with the providers and the insurers, right? Lots of different examples of how building individual and team and organizational capacity to lead change They can get real time results. And it's not just a one off. It's again, it's a learning journey.
0: Healthcare has changed a lot. I feel like remember back in the day, anytime you went to the clinic, you had to fill out like 30 papers. And now you can walk in and they have your whole history there in front of you.
1: Absolutely. And talk about just like your dad, right on there in the front lines, having to learn, you know, a new, um, you know, again, new systems for how he does his job or the gentleman that you had to show the whole new uh, how to edit software, editing software. Uh, You know, nurses on the front line, they're the ones that are having to deal with this, right? The the new way. So that's been one of the ways that, you know, healthcare has been one of my biggest industries because there's so much change and it's got to be done right at that frontline level, at that nurse level, right? At that admitting, um, you know, uh, receptionist level. Because if they don't, it's garbage in, garbage out. If they don't have the, you know, patient records accurate, then, you know, everything in the system, it's a cascade from there. Mm -hmm. Um, So healthcare is a great example of how, yeah, there's so much changes at the top in terms of, again, uh, you know mergers and acquisitions with different community hospitals in terms of dealing with the government and the um, insurance insurers and the relationship between the shares and providers and that sort of thing, um, but there 's also just so much within the organization on the front line um, that we need to again know how you know learn how to lead collectively more effectively
0: mm-hmm. so for people who are listening, I know we 've talked a lot about what being a change leader means, but if you had to break it down into maybe like the top three traits of a, a good change leader, what would you say?
1: I would say, well, the definition of change intelligence is the awareness of our style of leading change and the ability to adapt our style to be optimally effective across people and situations. So I'm gonna come back to your specific question and I'm gonna take a little detour, though, to talk about the neuroscience of change, okay. all right? This is really fascinating Yeah, I like fascinating science, yeah. Stuff. It's, if, yeah, so if anybody's interested, Google the neuroscience of change. There's a lot of really interesting research. And what we know now is that folks who study the brain and they put electrodes on people's brains and they see what happens, right, with different kinds of stimulations. When we encounter change in our organization, right, the same neuroreceptors fire in our brain as when we experience physical pain.
0: Hmm. So in a very
1: literal sense, yes, to our brain, change equals pain. And what happens when we experience pain? Well, fight, flight, or freeze. Right, fight, flight, or freeze. All the good stuff in our brain, the oxygen, the glucose, right, you know, the things that feed our brains that give us a strong IQ, right, gets sucked down to help our heartbeat and our lungs pump air and our muscles contract, right, so we can fight, flight, or freeze. So, literally, what happens when we encounter change is that we get dumber. <laughs> we get dumber. <laughs> we have less cognitive resources available just when we need it most. So, what I say to leaders at any level is that what can you do? because change is stressful. It's stressful to the people that are being impacted and it's stressful to you as a leader, right? What can we do? Because when we get the resistance from others, that also increases our pain, right, in our brain, our fear, our threat. We're getting resistance, what do we do? That's when we start feeling like we're pushing. We're, we're pushing against the resistance, we're doing something to others, right? And what we also do when we're under stress and threat, is we do more of the same thing. We go to our dominant responses, the things that have worked for us in the past, because we're not thinking clearly. So what we need to do is put our own oxygen mask on first, right? We need to breathe. We need to recognize that we have options as leaders, right? We can't control them. Other people, we can't force change on them. The only thing we can control is ourselves. So change intelligent leaders recognize what their behavior is in the moment. Right? Mm. And when they're getting into the pushing, the forcing, the telling, the demanding, they're able to hold the mirror up to themselves and say, yeah, what I'm doing now, that's like a hammer. I'm using my hammer, mm. but that's not a nail in front of me. right? I need like a wrench or a screwdriver. Right. <laughs> and they need to go into their tool bag and pick out another tool. And that's what change intelligence helps us do. It helps us recognize that, yeah, my dominant style as CEO is to lead from the head, is to hit people over the head with that mission and the strategy and why we need to do this to stay competitive and survive and thrive and all that. That's my go-to, that's my go-to, but sometimes I might be overdoing that and I need to put, pull out a different tool. I need instead to start asking questions, letting people give their opinion into what to do to move forward, into getting some feedback about what's working, what's not, into going slower instead of pushing this new change so quickly. So that's what I always encourage change leaders to do. I would say the top three things are, one, to recognize what's going on with your people, to recognize that what looks like resistance, right, is not something to be overcome, it's a source of information. And if you can reframe that from your enemy to your ally, it's a source of information that you can then do the second thing. You can learn to adapt your own style because that's the only thing you can control. And then you can do the third thing, is you can act and you can partner together to really truly engage people for change. So first, being aware of your style. Second, being aware of your impact on others and what they really need, why they're resisting, right? And then third, taking that information in and acting differently so we can all partner together more effectively.
0: I always find that change is easier to accept when I've bought in as opposed to when I've been told that this is the way it's going to be. But in a lot of organizations, you're just told that's the way it's going to be. Is there a way to kind of get people to reframe it and to talk to people in a way where you say, like, you know, this is really better for you, and I hope you can see that, And or do you kind of like, once they're in the change, you reinforce the positive aspect of the change?
1: I think it's both. I think that you're right. I mean, a lot of times we're not going to have like a whole organization of, 300,000 people decide on a new strategic direction. That's not realistic. And yet participation leads to ownership, right? So, So often though, we don't recognize that there are things that people can input to. Right? Maybe they can't input to the overall strategic direction. Maybe they can input into how it's rolled out in their team right, or their unit. Maybe they can input in terms of, yes, we're going to do this. Maybe they can input into how and when we're going to do it. So I think any opportunity that you can leverage for some degree of participation, people own what they help create. right? That's definitely one. And then, you know, sometimes there, there might be certain changes that there's only a very small sliver, if any, of input opportunities that people really do have, right? And then it's to your point, what you said, how can we connect people on an emotional level with the change? How can we address their fears and concerns? And how can we build on, you know, the positives, right, uh, it, for themselves, their teams, and the organization, so I think that those are both strategies that, that we uh, you know that we can look at when we're looking at communicating and, and rolling out changes.
0: You talked about like generational change and how different generations deal with change, and this mainly has to do with technical change. But for me, like when there's a new process that's that's introduced and I need to learn it, and it's a, it's technical in nature, my first instinct is uh, this is new and interesting, and I want to learn it. But there also is some stigma or some some pushback when it doesn't go. The way i thought it would go right away whereas i feel like sometimes in in older generations they're just their immediate reaction to a new way of doing things that is technologically driven is just i don't want to do this do you see that sort of thing
1: yeah definitely i definitely see that there's differences in how um generations um, react to change and yet uh, so i'll come back to what's what i've seen in terms of that and yet When I talk about generational differences, because clients do ask me to speak on that subject, right? Because that's a huge change and everybody's trying to deal with it. I often communicate a quote and I don't know the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of, oh, kids today, they um, disrespect their elders, they with their mouth open, they put their feet on the table, on and on and on, like a whole laundry list of things that kids do today. And I ask my clients, I say, who do you think said that? And when did they say it? And people think, oh, it's you know, it's clever, so it's Mark Twain or it's somebody more contemporary, blah blah blah. Well, it turns out he said that was Aristotle, like you know, (laughs) you know, whatever BC, right? right? So, so again, the more things change, the more things remain the same, right? And to your point. I always wonder whether my field, change management, is going to be around in a decade or so because <laughs> of what you just said, right? I mean, people like my dad also, he worked for the same company for 30 years, and he got out just when you know, computers were coming online right? because he just didn't want to deal with it. And, um, and I think the expectation of the older generations right, was you get a job, you work for that same company for however many years, you learn your craft, and you do your craft well. Right. And then um, and then you get the goodies, you get the rewards. Right. You did your part. The organization does this part. And now the younger generations are, you know, growing up with the assumption that they're just not going to change companies, but careers multiple times. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're so used to and excited by the new software release. Right. Every six months or a year and totally new devices constantly. Right. Um, Whereas in the old days, you fixed your toaster. (laughs) You know, you had the same solid state TV for decades. Right. And so I think just the expectations that we have um, about needing to continually learn, right, and grow and do new things um, are are different across the different generations. So I've seen some of what you share as well.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting other side to that because I felt like my dad was more hands-on and would fix things and was handy, and I'm like less that way, but I am more technologically savvy. So it's just a, a generational change there. I brought this up in several podcasts, I think, because it's it's interesting to me. I read this maybe in middle school. I just happened upon it. A book by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock. Have you heard of this book? Yeah. Yes, of course. I just love the concept because he was way ahead of his time. Do you think we're going to reach a point where... There's so much change so quickly. The cycles just keep getting shorter and shorter to where the human mind is just going to be like toast because we can't keep up with all this stuff.
1: No, that's a great question too. And it's so funny. Now you're bringing me back because, um, Uh, One of my first projects as a young organizational psychologist was actually analyzing the Three Mile Island disaster, which Ah. you might recall was, Mm -hmm. right, the nuclear power plant that almost melted down. Um, And I wasn't on a project team that was actually analyzing it for real. It was a student project, Right. right? But I was a student in organizational psychology at the time. And one of the key learnings from that incident was that how the control room was set up right with all the bells and the whistles and the knobs and the dials and the and the warning system were just too cognitively complex for the operators to effectively deal with it Hmm. right there was just too much going on in the environment such that some of them did things like they took budweiser um, taps from a local um bar right you know and miller and you know different ones so, so they could at least have something that would help them distinguish what some of the different valves were and dials were it was like they 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 actively tried to manage the complexity of their environment oh because it was designed it was designed logically in a sense if you looked at what the machines and the equipment and technology needed to do but it was not designed with the human factors involved, mm. right, in mind, right? It was too much. So so it's funny because I hadn't thought of that example in years, but what you just said reminded me of that, right? How much change can we really absorb and effectively cope with? And as I mentioned, that's why I think the whole idea of change saturation and change fatigue is uh, such a big one in my field now because people are people are definitely feeling like that. And, you know, definitely when we look at how the human mind works, uh, you know, we crave stability. And we also, though, we get energized by some degree of change because stasis is death. So, um, so, so it is that different people are obviously more change-friendly, change-ready. Other people are more, I wouldn't say all the time, change-resistant. It's just that they like a more measured approach, let's say, to change. And so really, any human being has to be, you know, that dynamic balance, that homeostasis, right, changing and stability, and organizations too. Organizations need to be able to balance um, what is an organization that's organized, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Having organized, consistent, repeatable processes balanced with the need to change those processes in order to um, remain relevant, right, for the long term. So I think that's, that's a really great provocative question is, is there kind of a... Um, a saturation point beyond which things just start falling apart, and maybe that's what you saw in your Apple example, mm-hmm. right? There was a saturation point that the expansion had been too much, and now we need to um, kind of have the pendulum sw- swing back and go from the growth to the stabilizing phase. So, um, a very savvy question, and uh, and let's uh, let's both stay tuned and see how things evolve.
0: <laughs> so, also similarly, a lot of experts think we're going to see the singularity, at least in my lifetime, where computers will be able to create computers and then more and more people will be out of jobs. Do you see that as a big change thing happening now?
1: You know, ever since I started my career in the 80s, there was talk about robots, right? And robotics (laughs) replacing people. I mean, again, I was living and working near Detroit so going to all kinds of automotive plants and seeing the stamping machines, and the president of the United Auto Workers at the time says, "Well, robots don't buy cars," <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, but there was the fear. There was the fear that machines would replace man in so many different ways. So I think the the discussion from the you know on the artificial intelligence front is another evolution of that. In the you know the beginning of the industrial revolution, there was the same kind of fear, right? That assembly lines and automation would um, re- would replace humans. So. You know, I tend to uh, be the optimist, the eternal optimist, look at it as that, you know, ideally, um, and we've seen this in other industries, that the machines, right, replace a lot of tasks that perhaps um, are not the most energizing and engrossing, right, Mm -hmm. um, for people to really accomplish. They could be dirty, they could be hazardous, they could be incredibly repetitive, um they cannot challenge people intellectually so i tend to look at it as that when certain doors close certain job classes uh, may not be available to humans anymore other doors were open other doors were open and i think that gets back to the embracing the whole concept that we we move past kind of a paternalistic view of organizations and society needs to take care of me as an individual, provide me as a job. I do, I'm very egalitarian and humanistic, right? And I you know, obviously have a, placed a high premium on taking care of my fellow humans. And at the same time, we need to be thinking for ourselves and the next generation about, are we really sharpening our saw, right? Keeping ourselves abreast. So we're not like the steel workers that I work with who showed up one day, and we're surprised that there was a plant closing sign on door. It's a different age. We need to take responsibility to, you know, continually learn, understand what's happening in our environment, in our industry, um, and prepare ourselves to be able to participate in a future that the world of work will look very different.
0: I'm seeing some trends in development of people where, in this day and age, to survive, kind of, in, you're you're talking about in a. In a society where there may be fewer of these low skill, low intellectual level jobs, there's a push towards either having lots of different abilities or like hyper specializing on something so that you can be a unique commodity in your field. Do you see a lot of companies doing that where they have where they used to have 20 people with 20 different specialties? Now they have five people that each have four different specialties.
1: That's an interesting question. Definitely. um, And I've written a bit about this, actually, the future of work. And I think that there's a lot of changes going on just in terms of the relationship between uh, individual employees, right, or people and organizations. There's just a lot of different organizational forms. So, um, you know, everything from traditional contractor relationships to, um, you know, even virtual organizations that, you know, instead of having, you know, obviously we've all had experience with project teams within an organization that might have internal people, external people, vendors, suppliers, partnering on a specific bounded engagement. Um, Now we're seeing that kind of form for entire organizations coming together for a brief period of time um, with people who have very different employment contractual relationships with that short-term organization. So I think that's really, really fascinating, just uh, the different choices that organizations are making in terms of how many core people they want as employees and what the blend of skill sets that those people have and what they're choosing to contract out on a temporary or long-term basis. And again, I think that that um, opens up some very exciting opportunities for people as well to really be able to explore, are they more the generalists, right? Are they the specialists? Um, how broad do they want their skill sets to be? What kind of work arrangements do they want in terms of there's obviously different levels of collegiality and partnership and consistency, right? Just on a human relationship level, that those opportunities. So, so I definitely see that we are in a time that we are really definitely in flux in terms of what, um, to your specific point, about what types of skill sets organizations are looking for and also just what kind of employment contractual arrangements that individuals and organizations are forming.
0: Are you seeing a change with organizations to more of a results-oriented workplace and away from a, you know, eight to five, you're here from this time to this time, and you may have some measurements for what's expected of you, but, you know, in the future, maybe it's there are no work hours, but we have targets and goals and deadlines.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing that, you know, if you've been in this business long enough or any business, right? Um, for almost 30 years you see a a pendulum swing right you know just like you see a lot of times there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions then there's less there's a focus on decentralizing then there's focus on centralizing Mm -hmm. right I think what you just said—that that's kind of similar—is that um, you know there was a lot of focus on uh, non-traditional work hours, flexible work arrangements, um, telecommuting, right? Um, and then kind of the pendulum swung back in the sense of are we still getting the productivity levels that we expect in people when they have you know flex time or work from home? Are we, are we seeing differences in how we have, you know, teamwork in the workplace, right? If we have, you know, a lot of, you know, virtual or part-time employees versus the full-time that we're all together, right? So you see the pendulum swinging back a little bit. So I think that, again, just as organizations experiment with different types of arrangements, I definitely am always more in favor of, uh, you know, the results orientation, right, mm-hmm. versus the hours orientation. So I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily seeing More of a focus on results versus hours. uh, And yet, I see that that is, you know, a logical, right? Um, Approach that is, uh, as we say, a win-win, right? For Mm -hmm. both the people doing the work and the organizations getting the work.
0: So I'm getting from you that it kind of probably depends on the organization, what would work best for their situation.
1: Exactly, that's right, that's right. And I just see a lot of experimentation, right? And with with different types of um, of ways to um, manage that balance.
0: On the extreme example of that, one of our strategic partners with 360 Solutions just got back from doing a conference in Poland where the company he works with is based, but almost none of the employees actually live there. They're all remote employees and they get together once a year. And he was talking to one of the guys who on a whim decided he was going to go live in Thailand for the year. (laughs) And so he was, you know, he was getting his work done. So there wasn't any problem with that. And they primarily communicate via Slack, which is kind of like a communication tool. And it's just an interesting idea. And yeah, I see that as well because I work in a, a small shop here. I have very close communication with my team and my team is small. And so we're able to get more done because I think we're close to each other. But then we also have the ability uh, when we need to, to, you know, one or two of us to be remote and we can still get work done. So it's the finding the balance for your organization, I guess.
1: So that's right. So that's what we say design for purpose. I always think that give people, you know, as much as much flexibility and the ability to, um, again, they have an objective, how, how's the best way to meet it? And if for your team that means that you need to be co-located in the same physical place, right? We know relationship build results and we know it's so much easier to operate and manage and lead an intact team, right? That they're all together versus a virtual team, then so that makes a lot of sense. If you have the kind of task, right, or, or um or service or product that um that it's okay if you are in different places, right? And that is again what is more satisfying and engaging for the individuals on the team, then, you know, use technology and facilitate that solution. So it's just like in the training world. In the training world, that was another pendulum swing that, of course, all training used to be done, right, or almost all training in person, right, Mm -hmm. and instructor-led. Then, a couple decades ago, e-learning, online learning, the pendulum swung that, oh, we can save so much money, right, it would be so much more efficient, we don't have the travel costs, this and that, and the other thing. To do e learning, right? All web based. Then what did we see? We saw that that made sense for certain purposes. That made sense when you needed to, as an individual, perhaps some aspects of safety training or communication or um, a computer training, right? Could be done very efficiently online. But other skills, right, about leadership skills, how to communicate with people, right, how to build a team, right, um, that's a lot more challenging to do on your own um, on a computer, right? Mm -hmm. So the pendulum swung back a little bit. And now we have blended learning solutions, which, again, um, is all about how can, if we want to achieve this training objective, what is the best design and delivery method for that? And so I think it's the same thing with how we run our organization.
0: Yeah, I'd say the majority of our consultants that we work with they do experiential learning where they take a group through, you know, teaching them um, an idea and then they put that into practice through some exercise. And you can't do that virtually. You have to be together and you have to kind of have that experience so you come out the other side and say, oh, that's what that's about.
1: Exactly. And so that's what I was talking about earlier with the healthcare system or several other clients who learn to lead change real-time in pop-up learning labs that were actual change initiatives that they needed to get done in the field. And so they took the learning from the classroom, right, into the field, came together as a team, planned the change, executed the change, evaluated the change, and then gave and received feedback to each other about what worked, what did in their individual contributions, so that they could then go ahead and apply that to the next real-time change challenge that came on board exactly
0: well we've covered a lot of ground here so i think maybe we'll we'll leave it here yeah. for this time you have a couple books can you talk about those real quick
1: sure actually i have one book oh you have one book okay <laughs> um, Sorry. no it's fine i have one book a lot of white papers and case studies okay. so maybe so eventually there might be cq2 but right, right now there's one and it's called change intelligence it's change intelligence use the power of cq change that sticks. And if people are interested, um, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, ebook, print book. And you can also learn more about it and download case studies, white papers, a lot of different resources for you at my website, which is Change Catalyst with an S, ChangeCatalyst.com.
0: All right, and that's the best place for people to find you.
1: Exactly, that's right. They can also follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm pretty active on social media, also.
0: All right. Well, Barbara, thanks very much for coming on today. And I, I know we've all learned a lot.
1: Thank you. So bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast and shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.